we're going to come to open up God's words, and Phil's going to come and bring us the next section of Romans. And if you've got a Bible nearby, you might want to grab it, um, open it up on your phone. And I'm going to invite Jill, um, who's going to come and read our next section um, of Romans to us. If you flick to Romans 11, and we're reading Romans 11 from verse 25 through to 36. Um, Yeah, thank you, Jill. We're going to read that together now. Romans 11, from 25 to 36. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening, in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account, but as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory for ever. Amen. Thank you, Jill. We're going to just pray for Phil before he comes and shares God's word with us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's true, that it's powerful, that it is a sharper than a double-edged sword. And Father, we pray this morning that you would cut deep to our hearts, you'd um, minister to us by your words uh, through Phil as he explains it to us. Father, we pray for him and we pray for Phil that you would anoint him by your Holy Spirit, that you'd give him the words to say, that you'd... um, You'd step forward from the pages of your word and you'd step right into our lives, into our hearts this morning. Father, we pray that you'd give us open hearts, open minds, open ears, ready to be changed and molded and shaped by your word. Father God, we just pray that you'd uh, do this work this morning through Phil. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks, James, for leading us this morning. If you have your Bible with you, it'd be really good to have it open in front of you so you can follow, in, uh, follow the passage uh, for yourself. So there's nothing like the feeling of being humbled. A few things do it for us. One way to feel humbled is to do something embarrassing or say something embarrassing. When I was a kid, I used to tease my older sister about the way she walked. I won't go into details, 
But truth, truth to say, I was fairly merciless about it. And on one particular occasion, I was teasing her as usual, and I would walk alongside her and mimic her walk. But on this occasion, as I looked up at her to see her reaction, what I failed to see was the parking meter that I walked right into. My teasing never quite had the same effect after that. Another way of feeling humbled is by seeing something that makes you feel small. A few years ago, my family walked up Skiddor, a fell just outside of Keswick, and the view from, a, from the top was utterly breathtaking. We felt humbled because that view reminded us of, of how small and insignificant we are on this planet. Another way that we're humbled is when we feel privileged. Like when you're upgraded on a, a long-haul flight, or, or more significantly, when, you're, when, when Liz, for example, um, said yes to my request to marry her. And I hope that the time that we've spent in the last couple of chapters of Romans has humbled us as well. Both in the sense of being shown how small we are in this universe and in the sense of the privilege it is to be grafted into God's plan as we saw last week. I hope that as we've been taught the truth about God's plan of salvation, we've become aware of both the immensity of God's plan and the privilege it is to be part of it. And our passage this morning is the part of the book of Romans where Paul expresses how he's been humbled by God's plan of salvation as it's revealed to the Jews and Gentiles. And it ends in doxology, which means literally a verbal response of praise because of the fullness of the glory of God hitting us full in the face. And we need to hear this this morning. Because it's about realizing the significance of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. It's a huge plan for both Jews and non-Jews, the Gentiles. And if we don't grasp the magnitude of salvation and respond in humility, then the danger is we become entitled. Entitled to think that God's plan of salvation is all about me and not God's glory. Entitled to think that God's plan of salvation is about Jesus coming to meet my needs, to be the fourth emergency service when things go wrong. However, when we see God's plan in all its fullness, as Paul has been explaining in the last 11 chapters, and as we grasp the wonder of it, I hope that we, like him, will be lost in, in wonder, love, and praise. And find ourselves where Paul finds himself at the end of this passage, ultimately worshipping God, not just in words, but as chapter 12, verse 1 says, in life as well. And that's what the rest of the book goes on to teach us to do. So let's look at these verses now under three headings. And the first heading is this, be confident God's plan of salvation is for everyone. God's plan of salvation is for everyone. In our opening verses this morning, Paul sums up everything he's been speaking about in chapters 9 to 11. So look at verse 25 and 26 with me. He says this, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. 
Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. He's been talking a lot in the last few chapters about how God's plan of salvation will save both God's people, the Jews, and the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well. But the specific mystery here is the timing of God's saving plan for Jew and Gentile in the time period between Jesus' ascension and his return. So in that time frame, uh, contemporary uh, scholars call it the church age. In that church age, between Jesus' ascension and his return, Paul's fellow Jews are experiencing a hardening to the gospel, not a complete hardening. There's still a remnant. So some Jews like Paul and Peter uh, and, and, and many Jews today are still being saved, but not in great numbers like we see at Pentecost. But here's the mystery. In, in the Jews being hardened, God's plan is for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, non-Jews like you and me. Until the full number of Gentiles God has ever planned to save has come in. And here's the hope in verse 26. In this way, according to God's plan, all Israel will be saved. He's saying for now, Jewish people will continue to be converted in small numbers, but our hope is that one day they will be gathered in. One day there will be a revival amongst the Jewish people so that on that day, masses and masses of Jewish people will come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior and as their personal Messiah. And to back up his point, Paul quotes Old Testament prophecies that promise that Jesus will do this amongst his people. Let me read to you verse 26 and 27. As it is written, the deliverer, Jesus, will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. In other words, the Jews. Verse 27, and this is my covenant, says the Lord, with them when I take away their sins. It's a wonderful promise, isn't it? And it raises the question of how do we share the gospel of Christ with Jews today? Historically, there have been a number of ways that Christians have got it wrong. And too often, Christians in history have, got it, uh, have been appalling in their behavior towards Jews. During the Reformation, anti-Semitism had crept into the church. And today, we utterly denounce that as evil and shameful. Yet today, some modern Christians think that to evangelize the Jews is almost persecuting them, and so many Christians have backed off. Other Christians consider that the Jews will be, uh, uh, sorry, other Christians consider that the Jews are God's special people, and they will be saved through the Old Testament covenant. So they think that the Jews don't need to hear the gospel. But all those things are not what God uh, not what Paul teaches, or what God teaches through Paul here. In the light of all these wrong ways of witnessing to the Jews, let's look at what Paul does say in verse 28. As far as the gospel is concerned, they, the Jews, are enemies for your sake, non-Jews. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. They're still elect. 
For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Basically, Paul says the Jews are hardened for now. That's what he means by describing them as enemies of God. And they're hardened so that the gospel might go to the Gentile. That's God's plan, and it's the mystery here, in the sense that we're not able to see any reason for it. But the truth is, God has a plan for the Jews. They are God's people. God called Abraham and his descendants to be his special people, and that cannot be revoked. That's what that irrevocable word means. It can't be undone. So here's Paul's point. Tell Jew and Gentile alike about Jesus. For if the gospel has reached even Gentiles like us, then who are we to deny the Jews the chance to hear the gospel of the Messiah come to save all mankind too? As verse 32 says, for God has bound everyone over to disobedient, Jew and Gentile, everyone so that he may have mercy on them all, Jew and Gentile. So everyone who is called by God, whether Jew or Gentile, was an enemy of God, regardless of race, until God had mercy on them. And if that's what God is like, not just able to save anyone, but willing to save anyone, then who are we? Then we are not to act or think as if mercy is beyond the reach of anyone. And I hope that's a humbling mystery. Humbling because it's beyond our understanding. But also, as well as that, I hope it gives us courage and conviction. Conviction to tell people, regardless of race or background or ethnicity, about Jesus. Because the bottom line is, God is saving people in the world today. And for us today, I think one of the big impacts of this pandemic is that compared to this time last year, we are far humbler, both as individuals and as a nation, than we once were. And because of this humbler attitude, it might be that our friends and family are in a better position to listen to our reason for God. Just to illustrate that, just over a week ago, one of my non-Christian friends confessed to me that in a moment of weakness, he'd listened to a podcast by the Archbishop of Canterbury about God's purpose behind this pandemic. He also admitted that this pandemic has challenged him to rethink his worldview. And a year ago, I would never have imagined having that kind of an honest discussion about God with him. But it shows that people today might be in a better place, might be willing to talk about God more than in years gone by. And listen, if talking to people about Jesus is hard for you, then perhaps talking to Jesus about people is a good place to start. Do you know, as a church, we've started to pray each morning for the lost. So can I invite you to join us just for half an hour each morning, when you can? And listen, you might be surprised at how God uses that prayer and your prayers in that prayer meeting to bring the lost to him. And also, don't forget God's plan for the Jewish nation. 
continue to pray for the Jews and keep looking out for that God-given opportunity to share Jesus with, their, with them whenever you can. Why? Because who knows when it's time for God's people, the Jews, to be gathered in. Now that brings us to our second point, and, and it's, it's, it's where Paul moves on to, to say, see how great our God is. See how great our God is. Over the past term, we've worked through these chapters, and we've seen the staggering scope of God's plan of salvation. And I hope our minds have been stretched and challenged and rooted by all that God has said. But we come to the point where Paul kind of drops his pen. He's reached the end of these theological explanations of the entirety of God's uh, gospel plan. And he simply goes off script in praise and adoration. So, and we're going to look at these, next, uh, these verses in the next few minutes. And we're just going to see what they teach us. And I hope by doing so that brings us to praise and adoration too. So let's just read verse 33. This is where he goes off on one. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond all tracing. That footnote at the bottom of the page is slightly more accurate. It says the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Basically, it says Paul is now talking about God's riches and God's wisdom and God's knowledge. And when he speaks about the depths of these things, he means they're too much for us to take in. Our brains aren't big enough. And he quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 13 and Job verse, uh, Isaiah 40 verse 13 and Job 41 verse 3. And those are other chapters where both Isaiah and Job are bowled over by the depths of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. And that's why Paul quotes both of them in verse 34 and 35. So he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? They're, 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 um, they're questions that have no answer. They're rhetorical. There shouldn't be an answer. The answer should be actually no one. And the reason why Paul quotes these two guys here is because both were quoting, uh, both were, were, were praising God in situations where they had no way of explaining this world. They had no way of understanding the full complexity of it. And they both come to the point of realizing their own limitations in time and place and power compared to God. And in doing so, they bow down in worship. Who has known God's mind? Who has given to God anything? In other words, however hard you try, God is incomprehensible. His riches are too great. His knowledge, too uncontainable. His wisdom, too deep. Trying to get our heads around God's plan of salvation is a bit like lowering an anchor over the side of the ship on a fathomless ocean. You can let out more and more and more rope. You can try and reach the bottom. You can try and understand, but the reality is God's wisdom and knowledge is too deep. His riches are matchless. There's always more and more about God's ways that will confound us, more about God's wisdom that will humble us. And realizing that, we have no ability in and of ourselves to know and understand the mind of God is good for our humility. God is in a different league to us. And so practically, 
we ought not to be surprised if God says or does something that is hard for us to understand or even offensive. Don Carson once sarcastically said, to be surprised that God says and done something that offends is to assume that we know God perfectly and that his ways are as perfect as ours. Offense and surprise is what you'd expect from God who is bigger than us and beyond our understanding. And it's good. It's humbling. And it's vital to understand that when God offends, when God surprises, well, we're to be humbled rather than to react negatively. And yet, here's the joy, and it's slightly contradictory. We can't work it out. God is too great. He is uncontainable. He is his knowledge too deep. But it's humbling to know that God so acts in this world that people like us can know him personally. That's humbling, isn't it? How do we do that? How can we know God personally, the unknowable God, personally know him? What's the answer? Well, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16 quotes exactly the same verses in our passage. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But what Paul is doing there in the 1 Corinthians passage is explaining how believers do know the mind of our unknowable God personally. And the answer is at the end of verse 16, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16, here it is. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. He's saying here that the only way we know God is if we have the mind of Christ in us. And for all who believe and trust in Jesus, that's exactly what God has given us. He's revealed himself to us by giving us his word and by giving us his spirit who lives in us. And because God, the Holy Spirit, lives in us, we know God personally. When we read his word, it personally changes us. We personally hear the voice of God, and in that way, God is knowable. It's why we can say, dear Father God, and call him our Father. So how do we respond? And this is the last point. How do we respond? Romans 1.11 has been a long explanation of the gospel, hasn't it? All those chapters explain the gospel in its fullness. We've learned so much about our sinfulness and God's grace. We've learned so much about God's gift of faith and his election of his people to know him and love him. And we've learned so much about God's plan to one day bring all people, Jew and Gentile, into his family once more. And I hope it's blown our hearts and minds away. 
because Paul responds. Uh, he, he responds with, with, with just blown awayedness. <laughs> he responds with praise. Look at verse 36. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. God is our source, our sustainer, our saviour. He made all things. All things had their being in him. And all things will be brought under his rule and will fulfill their purpose of glorifying him forever. We would not exist without him. We would have no purpose without him. We would not survive without him. So to him be the glory forever and ever. And here are three ways we can glorify God this morning. First, we can walk humbly with our God, both in mind and spirit. Acknowledge that we can't know God's mind and know that we don't deserve and can't earn God's acceptance. These are gifts of God. Walk humbly with God. Secondly, we can be receptive both in mind and spirit. Be receptive to God's word and listen to him by it. God's word is all we need for salvation and for our knowledge of God. This is, this is not just a bunch of letters on a page. This is, this is the word of God. If you want to know the unknowable God, then bow your knee before him. Accept his son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior. Receive the Holy Spirit and know that your eyes are opened. And that each time you read his word, he speaks and we listen to his voice. And it changes us and molds us and shapes us. This is a miracle. This is unknowable. The workings of it is unknowable, but it's miraculous. It's life-changing, mind-blowing. And therefore, be receptive be receptive to God's grace and his gift of his word. And be receptive to his Holy Spirit. But you know, thirdly, and I love this, thirdly, we can live lives that bring glory to God. And this, this response to God's riches and wisdom and knowledge that Paul explains in all the chapters 12 to 16, the rest of the book, See, there's no point in being religious Christians. Religious Christians who know a lot about theology, a lot about God, but do nothing about what they know. Why can I say that? Because of the first word of chapter 12. Look at it, look at it with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, Therefore, in view of God's mercy. It's the biggest therefore word in the Bible because if what we know about God's salvation is so massive, then it brings us to our knees in praise and love and adoration and there has to be action. There has to be change. There has to be a therefore. 
There has to be willing sacrifice and offering to the God whose love is so immense, so mind-boggling, so condescending, so willing to draw us into his mercy. And I hope that having spent a good chunk of the last two years looking at these first 11 chapters of Romans, we find ourselves where Paul was, lost in praise to the one whose plan of saving this world is staggering but also longing in response like Paul to give our lives to Jesus, to say, take my whole life that has been saved by you and bought by you and loved by you and won by you and use it, change it, humble it, mold it to your will. Because only Jesus has the right to do that. Only Jesus has the right to ask us for that kind of wholehearted worship. Only Jesus has love enough to demand it. And therefore... Therefore, it's right to be urged, as verse 12 says, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. What he's saying is look back at the last 11 chapters. There's the view of God's mercy. Chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Chapter 2, how deep and horrible our sinful sinfulness is. Chapter 3, but there's a revelation from God, which is a righteousness from God being revealed, a righteousness by faith alone. Chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 8, nothing can separate us from that love. Chapter 9, here's the plan. Both Jew and Gentile will return to the fold Chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, in view of God's mercy. And can I encourage us all to go back through those chapters, chapters 1 to 11, and view God's mercy, and view God's mercy. See it in its all, its glorious, wonderful, mind-blowing, lovely, loving plan, and say, therefore, in view of it, let me offer my body, my soul, my life as a living, sacrificing, a living sacrifice that is holy and pleasing to God. May I worship my God in doing that. So whatever we say with our tongues, let it be to the glory of God. I know we will sin. We will always sin. We will sin the minute this sermon stops, I promise you. But oh, let's go to the cross and confess our sin and keep confessing our sin and seeking in view of God's mercy, his life-changing spirit to change us for his glory. Whatever we do with our bodies, let it be for his glory, a humble, receptive sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, so that as we bow our knees in worship and praise and adoration like Paul does at the end of chapter 11, at the beginning of chapter 12, may we begin this offer, this living sacrifice, this spiritual act of worship, in our bodies, in our minds, with our lips. Let's be humble. Let's be receptive. Let's live for the glory of God in view of God's mercy. The last 11 chapters. And as we view God's mercy... May we bow in adoration and praise. For from him, from him, and through him, and to him are all things.
to him. Not us, not anything, not our idols. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.